Hello and welcome to the Intrafish podcast where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry. I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. John, let's get down to some of the top headlines of the week. In particular, we cannot move away from the American Seafoods saga. Uh, Since the last time we talked about it on our our podcast, so much has moved uh, forward. Uh, We have spilled a lot of ink on this story, um, and in large part because it has such big implications, but also because it is kind of a bizarre story. Well, not kind of, it's a bizarre story. Um, So tell us a bit, because this gets into uh, loopholes and teeny tiny trains and product being held up and plants potentially being shut down. Yeah, it's chaos. Tell us where we are. Yeah, so when we last spoke uh, on the podcast, the, um, there had been speculation that a restraining order would be filed in Alaska uh, federal court to stop the Customs and Border Protection Agency from continuing to levy fines on Alaska pollock producers and the companies that ship the product for them. So uh, that indeed this did happen, um, and there's a hearing coming up on the 17th that may go a long way in deciding whether that restraining order will be granted or not. Um, the companies who uh, filed for the restraining order are affiliates of American Seafoods. They're shipping arms of American seafood. Um, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so that, that happened. And then um, <laughs> we've gotten some good pictures now and some really good understanding of this tiny choo-choo rail that um, <laughs> they are using at the um, Bayside facility in New Brunswick to effectively satisfy a requirement uh, in the Jones Act waiver that um, mandates that they use Canadian ports and some Canadian rail to transport the fish um, that they're shipping from Alaska on foreign vessels. So this thing is as ridiculous as we described it when we first heard about it. It's about 100 feet of rail in the yard of this port of Bayside. Uh, There's no connecting rail anywhere to be seen as far as the pictures show and basically it's got a, a little flatbed that a yard donkey tractor pulls and pushes a hundred yards one way and a hundred yards the next whoa 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 uh, hundred yards hundred feet or a hundred feet i'm sorry sorry you're, you're making it far longer than it actually is <laughs> yes it is a <laughs> tiny tiny train like a little toy train um so yeah yeah so um that we know better now. We've seen that. Um, what else? I mean, there's so much that's been divulged. Oh, we know. We, go real quick. We know also that um, at least uh, so far, there's about 26 million pounds of seafood, probably Pollock, sitting in Bayside, um, worth roughly 40 million bucks. That it cannot. It won't leave until a CBP stops issuing fines because companies that would 
uh, likely transport it would then be open to more fines. So they don't want to do that, obviously. So if people out there haven't read uh, John's column uh, called Alaska Pollock's Crazy Train to Nowhere, you need to. If you're wondering why uh, it's being talked about in, in and why why probably any of this is being scrutinized, go look at the photos and it does not look it does not look good. Now, is this so, you know, is it a workaround um, to satisfy the Jones Act exemption? Yes, it is. So question, is it the Jones Act that is ridiculous or this tiny little train that's uh, ridiculous? But and I do wonder if a little bell goes off when it starts moving. But I, we have not been able to con we have not gotten confirm or deny from anybody on uh, the train bell. But there is there is a cross, uh, you know, a crossing guard there for so that the non-existent road that goes over it so people don't get run over. But I'm being a smart aleck. The Wall Street Journal today did um, uh, uh, op-ed on it from the entire editorial board, which says something. But um, they called it uh, the whole process, uh, the route itself, economically loony. <laughs> so I think uh, most people see it as that. And yeah, yeah I mean, it, yes, it, it technically, I guess, satisfies the exemption. It certainly isn't in the spirit of the exemption that they've been under. And they didn't used to do it this way. They've been doing this for, you know, like we said, close to 20 years or more. And they used to actually, you know, rail it on legit rail for a little bit of time. But at some point, somebody decided, you know, they'd redefine what rail travel meant and built a hundred foot railroad, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, description, in the, in the yard of this port. And there we go. So, I mean, any... Anybody who doesn't know anything about this situation, just looking at it on, on its face would go, huh? What? No. As this case goes forward, and there's going to be a hearing on the 17th of September. In the meantime, that product's not going anywhere. There is a, there's a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of products sitting, uh, sitting there. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's just going to be, um, you know, waiting, basically. Nobody wants to touch this stuff. In the filings, um, Channel Fish, which is a supplier uh, of, of, uh, of products to, among other people, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, since they won a couple of bids, they said they had about 30 days of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, Pollock blocks um, to supply their operations, and after that, they were going to need to um, stop manufacturing. Now, you know, there's, there's going to be a full court press here. Um, you know, an, an all hands on deck effort here to get the attention of the Customs and Border Patrol, patrol, patrol um, to maybe uh, to maybe um, give them this exemption um, at the very least, give them this uh, this this uh, order to release the product. Now, um, how likely is it, John? What do we know about any political help they're going to get? Um, yeah, where where are we with the the cavalry coming? Yeah, well, I mean. First, uh, the Alaska delegation, which usually runs quickly to the aid of any of the seafood companies, uh, they they haven't, at least publicly, uh, come rushing at all. Uh, they told us, uh, Senator Young and Senator Murkowski's office, 
have told us uh, they're aware of the situation and basically they're monitoring it, for lack of a better word. So um, that, you know, that doesn't feel like they're whole hog into this, but who knows, you know. The other thing you brought up was the um, USDA uh, purchases of Pollock for school lunch and, and food assistant programs in the U.S. And this year we're at near record levels of those purchases, both in a volume sense and a value sense. Okay, great. So we know that. Um, that's kind of interesting because those products are bought under the Buy American Act, which means they have to be supplied by American companies and go through all these rules. Is this whole thing going with the Bayside program? Is this all of, you know, is it a violation of that act? We don't know. We're looking into it. But interesting to note is that on August 13th, uh, the USDA issued an award to Trident Channel Fish for 8 million pounds of Alaska Pollock. Um, however, uh, they couldn't get that much. Uh, the agency said it only uh, paid the companies for a little over 3 million pounds of fillets, citing much of the product was not awarded due to, quote, vendor constraints. Well, that August 13th timing is, is coincidental because that's the same time CBP started issuing these fines. So, um, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but it looks like it definitely the fines definitely threw a kink in the uh, in the plans here uh, for, you know, these these Pollock contracts. Yeah. And, you know, I, there's so many different Pollock companies that are involved here. Um, most of them in some way or another appear to have touched uh, this this system at one time or another. And it's clear that they that this is a, a, a very big concern. This is a threat um, to to, uh, to some of these companies, in particular, as we mentioned, uh, American Seafoods, that is um, trying and has been trying for years to find an investor or a buyer, um, this is not going to make life any easier for them, um, you know, in, in trying to make the case that it's a, it's a company that has, um, a lot of, a lot of value and nice big margins, which, um, normally it would in a good Pollock season, but right now when you have these fines hanging over your head, um, boy, that sure can make investors kind of, think twice i would think yeah so what do you do now though like what what do you do if you're the government do you continue down this path of fines and draw a line in the sand i mean the biden administration issued an executive order at the beginning of the year um you know that basically uh reinforced the buy american act they they called it the ensuring the future is made in all of america by all of american workers no god it's just ridiculous but the title that is but it it goes to um you know reinforce this buy america thing that's been going on for a long time and then uh, a memorandum in june basically said well let's start reviewing um these these processes, they call them transactional reviews. And where where did they uh, start? They started with um, border protection. So <laughs> they want uh, you know, customs to review any Jones Act uh, related, uh, you know, uh, transactions. 
So whether that triggered all this, uh, you know, it's unknown, but certainly the timing is is interesting. It's literally uh, something that in every one of our news team meetings we're uh, discussing and, and thinking about different angles on it because we just continually get new information on what's happening here. And there are, you know, there are definitely parties uh, within Alaska and within the shipping community that are, are pretty fed up with this, you know, and, and have been for a long time. Now, certainly they have a dog in the fight because they are, uh, they are competitors. But um, I, I, I do think that, that this is not going to be my personal opinion. There's, I, this is based on just, again, my opinion. I don't think this is going to go away uh, just just quickly and easily on September 17th. I think it'll be heard. Maybe they can get that temporary restraining order in place, but I'm guessing that this this Bayside program um, is going to be something that um, American will have to reevaluate because um, if it's getting scrutiny now, it could get it again. These rulings are never... These rulings are never final when it's an exemption. It's never like you're safe forever. Um, so uh, I, I have my doubts that this is all going to go back to the way it was uh, before this scrutiny. But we will find out uh, on the 17th, and in the interim, I'm sure there'll be plenty more. But um, yeah, I've already got <laughs> I've already got three three more stories on this to edit before my day ends. So. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, okay, let's uh, let's pivot around. Uh, let's talk about salmon. We had our 2021 salmon summit this week, uh, and really enjoyable. We had great panelists, um, and and we took a look at the the future of the industry, where it's headed. Uh, we scored some really really good, uh, really really good speakers. The first panel that we moderated was with three X CEOs. Um, former CEO of Cermak, Jan Hindar, former CEO of Movie, Atla Ida, and the former CEO of Evos, uh, Einar Watna. And it was fascinating. Every, each one of them were so thoughtful uh, and had so much um, interesting insight into the industry. Um, and and th that was our hope, is that when you're not muzzled as a public company or not muzzled by your company, you know, full stop and, and feeling scrutinized as a CEO, you get to be a little more reflective. And, and I, I, really, um, I, I really enjoyed hearing their, um, their views in particular on uh, offshore and land-based uh, production and conventional production. Now, we, we, uh, we haven't uh, discussed this on the podcast, but, uh, but I will mention it. You can go to our pages uh, and, and kind of read um, several of our follow-ups on it because uh, our, um, our colleagues in Norway did an, a, an amazing job covering it. Um, but Shelling Garuka, who some uh, in the industry will, will know from uh, his Alaska fishing days, uh, certainly in Norway he's known because he's a celebrity, those of you that, that don't know him, he's a, uh, he's a billionaire um, many times over, a U.S. money billionaire, not a Norwegian kroner billionaire. Um, and uh, he's got more than enough funds to really uh, make um, any project that he puts his mind to, um, to, to, give it a, a, to give it a real leg up. Now, what he is on to next now is what's called uh, uh, Salmar Acker Offshore, and it is uh, a, a joint venture 
between uh, Salmar, uh, the Norwegian salmon farming company uh, owned and, and run by Gustav Witsoa, another Norwegian uh, billionaire. Uh, and the goal here is to create a, a company that will develop offshore salmon farming uh, and really try to push the, push the, uh, the sector forward not just in Norway, but eventually, uh, eventually globally as well. I mean, this was this was big news. It was a a, a big big splash at the Aquanor trade show uh, in Trondheim, and uh, really, it, it more than anything, it makes the possibility of offshore salmon farming uh, more of a reality than a concept. Um, because uh, again, and it's not just money being thrown at it. Uh, Ocker, the the Ocker Group, it does uh, it's done offshore oil and gas exploration. It's done uh, anything you can think of that's a maritime related uh, business. The Ocker Group has has been in and put funds into. So they've got really smart people uh, from a business perspective and from a uh, a technology perspective. And then you have Salmar and Gustav Witsoa and and his. Uh, Growing network, uh, and they've also already done um, some of the early, uh, you know, some some of the early work on offshore salmon farming as well, and they've actually produced fish from it. So they're not new to it either. Um, anyway, so so that sort of set the stage uh, in part for our discussions on offshore aquaculture. Um, Atla Ida is involved in the in the uh, in the uh, Salmar Aquar Ocean project. So, um, so of course he's he's got a little bit of a uh, you know there's a, a little bit of a, a bias a more positive bias there, but uh, but he did you know he did really believe that this is going to be um, kind of the technology that will will be um, the one that will kind of lead uh, lead the way. Um, what was your takeaway, John, from what those executives uh, on our first panel thought about the different segments um, and and uh, you know starting with offshore. Yeah, I, just overall, they they were uh, very bullish, as you might expect, but I think more bullish than even I expected on just uh, salmon farming in general. You know, we're at a point where in Norway, you know, production is somewhat capped. There's not a lot more growth there. Chile, kind of the same thing. And, you know, those are the superpowers of salmon farming. But yet these these gentlemen were very bullish on growth and, and that growth, as you mentioned, uh, whether, you know, it probably won't come from traditional net pens that we've had for a long time, but they, they see future growth through this offshore, this land-based and land-based options. So uh, their bullish nature was very uh, interesting to me. Uh, I also, um, you know, I also heard the point made and you, you mentioned it a second ago, but the combination of, in Ocker's case, the combination of all their expertise in offshore drilling uh, combined with the expertise in, in salmon farming really probably gives offshore quite a boost and a leg up as far as, you know, being successful and, and being another form of production for the salmon farmers. The other point I heard, which I found really interesting was when you move offshore <clears throat> and to a lesser extent uh, land-based, you you need a lot of money. You need big companies. You need multinationals. In Norway, the current system, although the, the large uh, companies control the market flow and the processing, a lot of the production comes from small 
salmon farmers sprinkled along the coast of Norway. So there was some concern that, you know, as things move offshore, as they become more multinational in a sense, that this way of life, this this uh, form of income for remote, very remote parts of, of Norway it, it could be threatened. I, I found that fascinating as well. Well, uh, one thing that it, it, that is clear is that um, there is a limitation on how much uh, uh, salmon production can grow in the current setup. And in our later panel, we, we, uh, we discussed this as well. Um, Doug Sletmo, who's with uh, DNB Bank, um, you know, he, he was pointing out that the price sensitivity of salmon, um, the, the willingness for people to pay more money for salmon, um, despite the restrictions on volume, is is pretty uh, pretty impressive. There has not been this sharp elasticity um, and these sharp reactions that we've seen in the past, where you know salmon will hit a specific price point at retail, uh, and suddenly consumers just back right off. We have not seen that, and so on the demand side, the sky's the limit on on the demand for for salmon. On the production side. Not so much. Uh, you're seeing tighter regulations all around the world. So to really get increased production, you're going to need to get, uh, first off, more, more efficient with conventional salmon farming um, and, and control disease uh, and, and, uh, and sea lice better, uh, automate more. But really, it's offshore and uh, land base that's going to uh, really give the, the production that is needed. Um, what did you think that, you know, the general consensus on land base, I think, um, you know, again, like you said, it was relatively bullish. But I mean, in the past uh, few weeks, there has been some, uh, you know, with the implosion of the values in, in, in uh, uh, land based salmon farming companies on the stock exchange and uh, some of the continued uh, production issues at Atlantic Sapphire, the Miami-based uh, land-based salmon farmer that's kind of the leader right now. Um, it seems like, you know, in hearing from the panel too, while there is a belief that it's going to eventually kind of pan out, that, you know, as of now, maybe we haven't seen the big shakeout yet. Yeah, and you know, the, these uh, these. Uh, former CEOs have plenty of experience with land-based. I mean, their companies have been doing it for smolt production for, for a long, long time. Uh, that next step to full uh, marketable fish size production, however, is, you know, proving to be problematic, uh, at least uh, in Sapphire's um, situation right now. And so, and many of the others, I mean, nobody's producing very much volume. Okay. Let's, I mean, that's a fact. So, but I, I think it's interesting, and, and they touched on this slightly, but not, not a lot, but I found it interesting that the land-based rivals of Sapphire have started to be very public in, in social media and taking swipes at them, and and I, I, I don't know, I mean, you know, that just, personally, that just seems um, kind of counterproductive to me, because uh, you know, the guy, uh, the land-based farmers in Maine and elsewhere are already feeling opposition from, you know, it's, uh, interest groups that don't want them there for whatever reason. So for them to start, you know, um, eating their own, so to speak, to use that phrase, um, 
it, it just seems, you know, ill-timed and unnecessary. Yeah, we all know Sapphire's having trouble and, you know, they came out with, you know, all their promises and all their money. So they're an easy target, but mm, I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, the, the their rivals kind of picking at them is really a good approach for the health of that emerging sector, which is basically just learning to crawl right now, you know. I think there's essentially two tiers. It, it, that seems to be what's emerging. You have a tier of companies uh, that are, or a tier of projects, I guess you should call them. You can call them companies, but there's still many of them on paper. Um, you have a tier of companies who are well-financed, either privately or by uh, through their IPOs, and they have money. They have professional uh, executives, professional designers behind them. And and they're uh, and they have they have the staff and know-how, and then there's another tier of kind of the smaller scale producers that have been trying to do it for a long, long time that are aware of the difficulties, but maybe not uh, you know not as as uh, as exposed to the world of high finance and exposed to kind of the rigors that are required for, um, for, to attract this kind of capital. It's not easy. You have, to, you have to be able to show quite a bit of what you're capable of doing, and you have to show uh, you know, a really strong roster of executives, and you have to show um, that, that you have the, the license to build these projects before you can get the kinds of backers to, to come in that, that are really going to push these things forward. So. You know, some of the sniping and, and some of the criticism is is uh, probably going to come from people that aren't able to attract that level of, of, uh, of financing um, for whatever reason. But there's nobody that doesn't, I think, that doesn't think, well, this, this has a place in production in the future. I just think there's a realization that this isn't going to replace conventional volumes in the way that maybe some people um, believe that it, that it will. Yeah, and certainly not in the near term. But I, I will say that um, you have to ask yourself how many more um, stumbles can Sapphire uh, sustain in in the next six months, year, whatever whatever time frame you want. How many more of these uh, stumbles can they sustain without you know the air just just completely running out of this this um, operation? So. I don't know. I mean, they've got a lot of smart people. They've got a lot of money. Uh, you know, odds are they'll figure it all out. But, um, you know, it, it, they have had quite a few setbacks and not nearly the amount of uh, forward momentum that uh, they, they need or they expected. I'm curious your thoughts on um, on the, the marketing side and some of what was discussed there because I, I really enjoyed – I thought we, we really got some fresh insights um, that we hadn't heard before about uh, development of brands and the importance to the valuation of companies for them to develop um, to, to develop uh, brand assets and develop good marketing um, you know good 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 marketing practices. But um, what was your thought on that and and where do you think uh, where do you think the industry may need to head based on what our panelists were saying? Yeah, that's it was an interesting discussion. First, you know, they all noted how strong, like you said earlier, how strong demand is and how how resilient salmon has been during covid and and continues to be. So that that's 
fantastic news if you're in the salmon business. Um, they did spend some time talking about brand building, which is interesting because we're at a period right now where you see like movie and some others trying to start to establish a legit international brand of salmon to break out of that commodity cycle. Nobody's, you know, nobody's really done it. There is no, you know, hey, this is the, if you're going to eat salmon, this is the brand, you know. And Teresa Lowe from um, Acme, their new uh, marketing executive, um, she talked specifically about brand building and uh, what the promise a brand has to have for it to be legit and popular and, uh, you know, useful to consumers. So, and, and that's interesting because when you go to buy <laughs> smoked salmon at any U S grocery store, there's, there's just, you know, up to a dozen, um, packages sitting there and they're all different brands. So, uh, nobody's been able to establish brand dominance in, in that sector. And that's probably a lot easier than trying to do it in, you know, just fillets and fresh fish and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So I think, I think what I took away from that panel was we're kind of at an inflection point as far as brand building right now. Um, and you know, companies in Chile and Norway are, are trying to do it and they're having some success. So, you know, maybe the race is on for the top two or three salmon brands. Well, I think it's definitely, there's going to be some attempts, right? And uh, we're seeing some some companies rolling out, uh, as you said, rolling out brands, giving it a go, and uh, trying to find that um, that USP that's going to make their, uh, their brand stand out. So it was a great panel. That's, uh, by the way, for uh, our, our readers um, and for anyone, actually, you can go to our website and see a recording of the event here. Uh, I think we'll have the link up there on the site on Monday if you're interested. Um, and hey, let's wrap it up there uh, and look forward to next week. It's going to be another busy news week. Um, remember that if you are an Interfish subscriber, uh, take advantage of our alerts. They are fantastic, uh, especially if you're tracking a story like the uh, Alaska Pollock uh, Bayside program story uh, and, and series that the journalists have all been doing incredible work on. You can just go there, set up an alert for that. Every time we publish a new story on it, you're going to get notified. Um, and you can adjust those to receive them at any frequency that you want. So, Interfish subscribers, go check that out. Uh, also, uh, for everybody, you can sign up for Interfish newsletters. Just go to our site, click on the menu, go to newsletters, and we've got loads of different ways uh, that you can keep up with us in our reporting and whatever your interest might be. So until next time, thank you all, and we'll speak to you next week.